Hey guys, we are continuing to post our original episodes in podcast format, and today we are posting episodes 6 and 7, which originally aired on March 31st, 2022, and it's our only two-parter. features Aaron Lepresti, who's an artist that has worked with Marvel, DC, and a bunch of other publishers. Lauren got to meet him through his days back in, in Portland, and we just had a great time. We talked about his time with those publishers, the process, how he got in the industry, the art process. Uh, we discussed his graphic novel, Wraith of God. We just had a great time. And so it's our only two-parter episode, but it is well worth it. It's about an hour and a half, and uh, we're going to combine them for the podcast format. And uh, hope you enjoy. It's a great talk. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Chasing Collectibles Catch-Up. I'm Tyler. I'm Lauren over here. I'm Tim. And uh, we're very excited to have a very special guest with us, uh, Mr. Aaron Lepresti. And uh, Lauren, since you have uh, known Aaron for some time, uh, I thought you could give him a little bit of an introduction before we get started. All right. This is the amazing artist, Aaron Lepresti from Portland, Oregon. That's where I first met him uh, 30 years plus ago. Um, I asked him to draw many different Spider-Man characters, you know, different scenarios, and he's done a whole bunch of different art that I've got, and uh, we're, we're just lucky to have him here, and I appreciate you joining us, Aaron. Thanks so much, and uh, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, guys. I appreciate you having me on, and I appreciate the invitation. This is great. Yeah, this is awesome. This is, uh, we've, we've always wanted to uh, have you on. We've, we've discussed it in uh, various scenarios we, we just want you to come on and hang out with us for a little bit and talk all things comics and art um speaking of which w w about what age did you say i want to draw I, I you figured out wow i want to i, I want to take lessons or i just want to start well you know I, used, I had this joke from when i was very very young that i was born spinning a basketball on a pencil because those are the two things I loved was basketball and drawing. And I don't remember a time where um, I wasn't drawing. You know, I have memories in kindergarten of like doing drawings at home and bringing them and passing them out to the class and things like that. And I've got some drawings someplace that I think were pre-K that I just did at home, you know, watching Flintstones cartoons or whatever and, and trying to copy those types of things. So I don't have like a memory of me not drawing any more than I have a memory of me not wanting to be a basketball player when I was very little. I mean, it just seems like I always played. And um, <clears throat> I didn't want to, or didn't, didn't discover comic books till I was probably nine or 10 years old. And that's when kind of my focus shift from just, you know, random drawing of cartoons and things like that to specifically comic book stuff. And so I was about 10 years old when I started, nine or 10 years old when I started collecting comic books regularly. And that sort of focused my, my art interests in that direction. That's awesome. Uh, I'm a huge basketball fan too. And I, I'm surprised that I didn't challenge you at some point to, you know, some, some hopes because I used yeah, to play well, all you'd have been, the time. Yeah, well, you'd have been sorry if you had, but... I couldn't get up high enough to dunk it, but I have been close, but um, 
I was full of trickery though. It was, yeah. it, I, 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 I played basketball. I was pretty good. I played basketball through high school. And, uh, but, uh, you know, when you start looking at playing post high school you're not going to be a division one player, you're going to be maybe a, you know, division three or small college or something like that. You're kind of like, why, why do I want to continue to practice, you know, year round and beat yourself into the ground and, for, you know, I, I, my love of the game by the time I graduated high school had, I mean, I still enjoyed it, but to be really thoroughly committed to it, I was done, you know, and uh, yeah. my focus became more on art and uh, film and some other things that I tried to get into. And uh, so I just, you know, I played rec league ball to keep myself interested until I was 28 and I was in a rec league in the same season, I dislocated my jaw and then somebody, you know, came up underneath me with an elbow and uh, dislocated my jaw. And then that same season, I tore ligaments in my ankle and I was like, you know what? Wow. I'm done. That's it. That's, so that's a good. That was it. Good. That good. Note it. To... <laughs> so the next interview will, will not be at a basketball court or, or what do you, what do you think? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> can we, can we do it where it's like, you, you guys think that maybe you guys still have a little left in you, you know, a little Lauren versus Aaron or, or uh... Dude, there is, there's nothing left in this tank. I had, uh, <laughs> same, same I had, here. <laughs> I had shoulder surgery last year and it still bothers me rotator cuff surgery. And I'm still, you know, the guy's like, yeah, you can start playing basketball again if you want to. And I'm like, I haven't shot a basketball in 10 years. You know, I don't think I can even get it up over my shoulder anymore. <laughs> So, yeah, those days are gone. Like, I can just see myself being out there for about two minutes and blowing my knee out or something. I was just Ooh, like, no. All for a stupid pickup game. Yeah. Exactly. It's not worth it. Nope. Nope. <laughs> we wreck ourselves. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, uh, sp speaking of your, you know, committing to going into, you know, drawing professionally, um, you said that you've been, can't remember the time you weren't drawing. Did you have to go through any sort of, like, professional training at any point? Like, did you go to school at all to draw just to, give yourself more of that knowledge or is most of your skills kind of like developed over time? Well, unfortunately I was, I was very foolish and I had a very high opinion of myself very young in terms of my artistic ability, which was grossly misplaced. And so I was, for some reason I went to Oregon state and I didn't, I, I did not pursue art out of college. I was like, my thinking was I'm going to get a business degree so I can, you know, handle my own contracts and do all this stuff. And then I was going to, you know, move to New York and be a comic book artist and then, you know, do prints and portfolios and, you know, and manage my own career and all this kind of stuff. And, and so I didn't really, I took a few art classes while I was there, but um, not my focus wasn't on it. And I got booted out of business school because I could not get past uh, 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 calculus. Uh, that was where, you know, I hit the ceiling in math, which is funny because my wife's a math teacher, but man, that was it for me. And so when I got out of, uh, when I got booted out of uh, the business school at Oregon State, um, I went to junior college and got all my general ed requirements out of the way. And I started, I had got interested, really interested in film in high school. And so I ended up at film school at USC. And again, there I took some art classes while I was there to kind of stay connected, but I really wasn't practicing uh, 
my craft at all. And it wasn't until I got out of film school and realized that that was probably not the best career move. And then I decided I wanted to pursue comics again. I was, you know, oh, I was like 25, I think. And so basically I really hadn't drawn much since when I was 17 or 18 in high school. And so my skills had really sort of, um, it just really retarded my skills to a point where here I was this 25 to 28 year old working on my craft and trying to get into comics and drawing like a 19 year old because I hadn't really practiced and really got focused. And so um, I was able to hook up with a commercial arts studio after film school in LA for a while, I moved back to Portland and I hooked up with a commercial arts studio there and I learned a lot of stuff there. And while I was working in commercial art in the studio, I was sending off sa samples and, you know, making phone calls and making trips back to New York to show my portfolio to Marvel and DC to try and break in. But I made it a lot harder on myself. If I had just gone to some semblance of art school, I think when I had graduated high school and stayed on that direct path, I probably would have been able to break in at Marvel when I was, you know, 21, 22 years old. And in the early, well, that would have been, yeah, early to mid eight, mid eighties and um, might've had a different trajectory on my career, you know, but I got distracted with other things that were of interest to me. And it, it took me a while to come back around to that. <clears throat> That's amazing. So to answer your question, I'm pretty much self-taught with um, the instruction I did get at um, the commercial arts studio I worked at for a couple of years and the, the, the various classes here and there that I took while I was in college for different things besides art. That's awesome. I wish I, I, wish I could just self-taught myself, teach myself how to draw. It, I mean, I taught myself how to play drums but well, I mean, it's, it's the same. It's thing. an art, the same, but yeah. um, I've always loved art and drawing, especially comic art. Mm -hmm. Well, there wasn't, I mean, other than the Kubert school at that time in New Jersey, there really wasn't a lot of, you know, you didn't go someplace to learn how to be a comic book artist. You went to schools to become an illustrator and then, you know, you went whatever direction you wanted once you graduated. Um, now there's, you know, you go to all these different colleges and almost every college has some sort of comic book art program, whether it's any good or not mm. is you know, another question. But uh, back then there wasn't really an avenue for that. So you went either to become an illustrator and then, like I said, you would you know find your way after you graduated or a lot of guys, of course, would just were talented enough that coming out of high school or maybe a few years after that, they were able to kind of like jump into the industry like you know somebody like Arthur Adams or somebody who started very young or you know Joe Madreira was a guy who started very young um you know so there was there were guys that got in there you know 18 19 20 21 years old uh but those are the guys that are like you know super super talented and the rest of us sort of had to kind of work our way into it <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah okay um is there a uh, like a, a superhero that that you know in your your time of drawing that uh, you've really enjoyed you know drawing and working on the most? Are you talking about professionally or just in general? Professionally, stuff I've worked on. Um, probably, probably the Hulk. 
I mean, yeah. he's kind of like this, I'm a big monster guy. And so he's like the, the perfect combination of a superhero and a monster, right? You're getting the best of both worlds there. Mm -hmm. And I had a, a short run on the Hulk. I worked on Planet Hulk. Um, Carlo Peglione was the original artist on Hulk. And when they decided to do this Planet Hulk story arc that was that branched out over, over a year long, and uh, the editor called me up and said, hey, um, you know, Carl is not going to be able to keep a monthly schedule on this book for what we want to do. So we want to do rotating story arcs. You know, are you interested? And I said, yeah, absolutely. So basically he would do the first four issues and I did the next four issues. And then he did, I think, the next two. Then I did the next two. Then he wrapped it up or something like that. And so, um, but so that was that was a, a great story arc. You know, I assume you guys have read it. If you haven't, you should check it out. Cause it's like, right. it is to Hulk what Beta Ray Bill's Simonson's uh, run was to Thor. You know what I mean? It was just, mm -hmm. it's that important of a Hulk storyline. And I was just happened to be in the right place at the right time to get an opportunity to work on it. Um, yeah, that is one of my favorite ones too. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's just a, it's just a great story. And it, and it was hard work because there was a lot of like, Romanesque type soldiers and battles and tons of characters and things like that. But it was, it, it was, it was so fun to work on. Uh, the guy that wrote it, Greg Pock, uh, he was a film school school student at uh, NYU. So we would, you know, exchange stories. And he was a New York uh, film student, and I was an LA film student, you know. And we would, uh, so we connected and got along really well. And so it was, it was just a, it was really well written, and it was a lot of fun to work on. So I would probably, probably say that if you're not counting characters I created myself you know if I'm you're talking about characters for the big two then mm -hmm. probably that run on Hulk would probably have been my favorite thing so what uh, characters you've created yourself um what would be probably your your favorite of those too well I got two of them behind me on those banners as you can see there the one in the middle is called garbage man and that was a um series I did for DC Comics, uh, but it was a creator-owned thing that I did through DC Comics, and uh, it's kind of a combo of uh, Swamp Thing and Sludge, if you guys remember that from my days at Malibu, um, and I, I wrote it and drew it, and um, recently when I left, well, actually before I left DC, I was, we were able to get, when I say we, I'm sorry, uh, Kevin McGuire also did a, we were in the same book together and he did a creator own character called Tanga, which was this alien chick. And we were always kind of debating on whether we'd be able to get the rights back to these things or not. And then Dan DiDio just gave them to us. He didn't have to, because <laughs> we had an agreement with DC that um, each of us individually, of course, not together, but the, the agreement was basically that we created these characters and DC would license and license the character from us for a fee of $2,000, but then they could keep them forever. All they had to do was meet a couple of criteria. One, they had, to, they had to publish something with the character in it once every three years or something, right? And then they could just keep the, the license. We would still be technically the copyright owner of the character, but they would have the license forever. So we wouldn't really be able to do anything with it, but we would get a higher royalty or percentage if they did anything with the character. So there was really no incentive for them to give it back to us, but, you know, I'm, you know, I got along great with Dan DiDio. I know he's kind of a polarizing figure because he was ahead of DC for so long. It's inevitable, but I got along with him great. And I just think out of the kindness of his heart, he's just like, here, you guys, we don't need these, take them back. 
And so I've recently had a trade paperback collected of all the stuff I did at DC and I had Dark Horse publish it and it's actually out right now, the Garbage Man trade paperback. And that's probably some of, if not the best work I've done in comics is in that, uh, within that series because I didn't have, there was no deadline pressure. It was kind of like, we were just kind of putting it together as I got it done kind of thing. And then once it was kind of put together, they formatted it and packaged it and all that kind of stuff. So it was really um, no pressure at all in terms of, uh, you know, deadlines and things like that are the things that usually you end up having to cut a corner here or there to get something done on time. And that wasn't the case with that book. So that was probably. It's got to make it easier on, on you as far as, you know, like you said, no pressure. It's just take my time. I don't like this. I'm going to erase it. Start over. Um, Yeah. Exactly. And it gave you time to put more thought into like your designs and your layouts for the pages and things like that, that maybe you wouldn't normally get. And um, it was really great because if I was working on, let's see, when I, when I first started working on the script, I was drawing Wonder Woman for DC. And so when I got done with Wonder Woman, and we were kind of looking to see, okay, well, what are you going to do next? Let's say there was I think I, I went to Justice League Generation Lost after that. But there was a period of time in there where there was, you know, well, we're not ready. We're not going to be ready for this for two months or something. And I'd say, okay, well, I'll just work on Garbage Man for two months. And whatever I got done, I got done in that two-month period of time. And then I'd go and work on Justice League or whatever. And then when there was a gap, I'd go in and, you know, work on Garbage Man again. And that, so it, it came together that way. So it was really, like I said, it was really a, a low-pressure uh, situation for an artist to be under. So um, one of the very few times in my life that I was was able to uh, work without deadline pressure just bearing down on me, you know. I can imagine. Mm-hmm. So yeah. You, so you've alluded to you know working for DC. Um, of, of the two, I guess how, how did you first get into? I, I, I'm not sure which one you got into first because uh, you've you've worked for both, but. I've I'm always been curious when I read comics and I see the the authors and the the artists and all that. I wonder how you how do you get into a uh, a, a publisher like that? So how did you first uh, get into comics like that? Well, there's the uh, the old fashioned way which I used because I'm mm-hmm. old, and then there's like what people are doing now, which is basically using the internet, but that didn't exist, you know, in the late '80s and early '90s, and and so what you had to do was you had you had two two routes available to you. You could do some sample pages and you could mail them in, you know, Xerox of the sample pages to an editor at either Marvel or DC and hope that they opened the envelope and looked at your samples, or you would go to a, a major convention because they would only show up at like San Diego and New York or Chicago or someplace like that. They wouldn't, you know, you're not going to get those uh, editors and, and publishers showing up at a Portland show or a Seattle show, you know, they just, it wasn't big enough for them to bother with. So um, what I did was um, before I moved back to Portland, I was still, I was living in LA. I'd gotten out of film school and I think I was reading scripts for TriStar or something, you know, dumb like that. And so that's when I started putting together samples and stuff for uh, comic book publishers. I, I picked up some work for a company called Blackthorn in LA, and this was kind of during the uh, independent comic book boom, 
you know, the black and white boom when the turtles came out and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of independent publishers trying to kind of get a little piece of the market. And Blackthorn was one of them. And they, I, um, I did a couple, like I did the Solomon Kane 3D was, I think was the very first job I ever did. I did a couple of Rambo comics for them, but I don't know if they ever got published. Um, Cause I, I know they didn't pay me for all that stuff either, but that was the risk you ran right back. And yeah. I was trying to break in. You were more concerned about getting published than you were getting paid. And so anyway, I, I went, I, it dawned on me that I here I was living in LA and San Diego was only what, you know, 120 miles away. And they had the biggest convention in the world there. And it's kind of like, well, why am I not going to the show? And so I put together, uh, talk about overkill. I, I wrote a 20 page Spider-Man story and drew it, penciled it and took it to San Diego as my sample. Really all you need to do is about five pages. Right. But I did the whole, I did the whole freaking overkill. story. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, exactly. And um, so Terry Cavanaugh, who was the editor for at Marvel for Marvel comics presents, if you guys remember that it was a biweekly mm -hmm. anthology mm -hmm. book that basically had a Wolverine story and then a bunch of whatever else they filled it with. Yeah. And so Terry was at Terry Cavanaugh was at the Marvel booth at San Diego. And I went in there and I, you know, I just went up to him and I said, Hey, would you look at my portfolio? And he did. And and he said, no, this isn't too bad. He goes, you know, I might be able to use you on Marvel Comics Presents. And I thought, well, that's, he just gave me a job. Well, it's not exactly what happened. But so, you know, what I did was I, I got home and then I started calling him, right? Because we couldn't, again, send an email or anything. I had to call him on the phone. And um, most of the time you get their answering machine, but once in a while they would pick up, right? And... Um, so I kept bugging him saying, Hey, remember you told me you'd send me a story, <laughs> story, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I'm trying to remember if I actually had to go to New York before he gave me that job or if it was, I think I actually got him on the phone and he said, okay, okay, I'll send you something. And uh, so he, he did this, I did this eight page Spider-Man story. It was the very first stuff that published at Marvel. And, um, and then I thought, well, I'm in, right? No, never heard from anybody again. That was it. And so I had to go right back to calling all the time and calling various editors. And uh, then I started planning trips where I would go back to New York every six months. So this is when I picked, I hooked up at the commercial art studio in Portland. So I had some income coming in and I would save up my money. And then every six months I would fly back to New York and, um, either, you know, uh, stay with a friend or, you know, stay someplace super cheap and then spend a week there just going back and forth to DC, showing my portfolio. Um, mostly my focus was at Marvel. Um, I did go to DC one time, but, uh, growing up, I was pretty much a Marvel zombie. So it was like, that was where my interest <laughs> was at that time. And what I did was I got in good with <laughs> the, uh, the receptionist at Marvel and, um, she would let me in when I didn't have an appointment, right? So you'd go into the, it was really funny because you'd get the, take the elevator up and you'd walk into the Marvel library, library uh, lobby. And there was always several people sitting there and probably a lot of people that were wanting to show their portfolios or whatever, right? And I would go up and start talking to her and then she would just buzz me in, right? So then I would walk around the Marvel offices and with no appointment with anybody, right? 
And then I would just wait to see if I could find somebody whose door was open. And then I'd go <laughs> annoy him. Right. Now oh my I knew God. <laughs> I had done the job for Terry Cavanaugh and you'd always get this look like they'd go, what did you, how did you get in here? What are you doing here? Kind of thing, you know? And um, so I remember sitting outside Terry Cavanaugh's office because I, was, I wanted to talk to him, but he was on the phone. So I'm just sitting out there with my portfolio and he knew, you know, what I was doing out there. And I remember him talking on the phone for a little bit and he looks over at me a couple of times and he shuts his door. <laughs> He's like, oh, it's like a stiff arm. Yeah, He's exactly. Like, and, uh, relentless. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I didn't give up, you know, cause you can't, right? And yeah. so I would either go bug somebody else. And then when his door opened up again, <laughs> we'd go back and bug, oh, I'm sorry, you know, you're on the phone. I didn't mean to disturb you, but you know, can you hook me up with something else? And I think he eventually gave me like a Submariner story. And that was, I did. And it sat in a drawer for a couple of years, I think, before they actually used it. Um, but then I met other people while I was there. And Renee Witterstatter was one of the people I met. And she was an assistant editor there, but she was in charge of their humor comic called What The, right? Which is basically uh-huh. a Marvel parody book. And I was able to convince her to let me do a parody story in there with Forbish Man, right? And uh, who is a 1968 character from uh, Marvel's parody series from 68 called Not Brand Eck. And it was, uh, he was like their little, you know, mascot for the book. And so I thought, oh, I'm going to be genius. Didn't he have like a, back. didn't he have like a, a, a pot? on his head yes yes yeah. and i and he wore long red underwear and yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and he was just <laughs> kind of just nerdy guy who wanted to be a superhero kind of thing so i started these, writing these, these young ones these young ones over here on the, yeah. on the left they don't they don't remember that yeah they're like forbish man what the heck is that and um <laughs> well i think that stan lee back in the 60s had come up with basically this sort of um uh alfred e newman you know was kind of like the the mascot for mad magazine and mm-hmm. he came up with something similar which he called him irving forbish and so he would reference irving forbish but there was never any forbish man thing until 1968 they actually put him in a comic and so he was sitting out there and, and so i thought well that'll be fun i'll just kind of bring him back and and do these parody stories and that's where i started getting semi-regular work was in that book but I was still back in Portland working in the commercial arts studio. And, you know, I, I, what happened was I got uh, sort of pigeonholed around Marvel as being this humor artist. And so when I tried to get superhero work, I, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't get any. And so one of the trips that I had made back, cause I was making regular trips, you know, for probably two years back to, to New York every several months. And, um, I had Renee Witterstadter who was good friends with Michael Golden and he was the art director at DC at that time. And so she introduced me to him and I, you know, talked to him and stuff. And he, he gave me a critique of my work for the first time in my life that really sort of made sense to me that I really understood where my shortcomings were and what I needed to do to fix them. So I was there for a week and um, I was actually staying at Renee's apartment. She put me up. And so Golden was over there all the time. So I had like Michael access to Michael Golden for seven days in a row, practically, right? So I was constantly picking his brain. And, and so 
that I stayed over a weekend. So I came in the middle of the week, stayed a weekend, and then halfway through the next week. And so that weekend I drew new sample pages, like just like three pages of a Hulk Wolverine thing, you know, mm -hmm. based on the things that Michael Golden had told me and what I needed to do to improve my work. And so then Renee took me in to see Danny Fingeroth, who was a Spider-Man editor at that time. And so I showed him the samples and he liked them enough that they were doing, uh, they were doing Spider-Man twice a month at that point. And Bagley was doing was the artist on Spider-Man and it was just killing him because he had to do so much work. So they started running short backup stories in the back of Amazing Spider-Man and Danny started giving me some of those. And um, so it was a process where, you know, I would do one and he wouldn't like it. And he'd say, eh, you're just not really getting it. I'm not going to use you anymore. And I'd go, no, 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 please, you know, give me another chance. And I would like do some more samples and give them to him. And he'd go, okay, yeah, this is more what I'm talking about. So this kind of went back and forth for, a while and I, I picked up a, a dark hawk annual uh, while I was there with another editor you know just trying to meet people and trying to get work and and um, and about that time I, I had done the dark hawk annual and it, it was okay you know it was better than the spider-man stuff but it was still wasn't yeah we were just while while you disappeared we were just I was just complimenting him on his uh, bullying skills of getting into the corridors <laughs> of the open doors of Marvel and just saying look <laughs> I'm DC here was a you lot need harder. To, you need to let me work for you. Yeah, DC was a <laughs> lot harder to get into. You, you couldn't yeah. get in without an appointment. In yeah. fact, I called up uh, who I was I was in New York City, right? And I was I, I went to the outside their offices and there was a payphone down there. Remember those? And <laughs> I do. Uh, so I had the <laughs> number. <seen> <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> this guy. I'm, I'm literally right, you know, out in front of the building calling on the phone and I got a hold of, um, well, it'll come to me, one of the editors there anyway. And I said, uh, hi, you know, my name's Aaron Lepresti, you know, I'm an artist. I, I'd like to, you know, get a portfolio review. I, you know, flown into town, blah, blah, blah. I try to guilt him up, you know, not, well, he came all the way in, you know, we got to see him kind of thing. And the guy was like, uh, well, I'm going to go on my lunch break pretty soon, but uh, well, he goes, well, where are you exactly? And I go, right out in front of your office on a payphone. <laughs> he goes, oh, really? He goes, all right, come on up. I'll take a look, you know, before I go to lunch. And uh, it never, it never got me any place, but it, I did sit down with him and talk to him. And he looked at my portfolio and, you know, gave me some pointers and all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, you just had to be really aggressive and yeah, persistent uh, as well. I'm sure. Relentless. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, that, that was the only way, you know, to, to break in. And like I said, unless you were somebody like, you know, Arthur Adams or somebody like that, that was, you know, doing work for, you know, I think Arthur started off doing work at Pacific Comics because it was a lot of those actually fairly decent publishers in the early to mid 80s, First Comics, Pacific Comics, Kamiko. Um, they were actually, you know, they would hire people and Marvel and DC would actually kind of look at that stuff. So you could say, oh yeah, I did this series for, you know, Pacific comics and, mm -hmm. you know, they might hire you based on that yeah. or they might see the stuff and call you and say, Hey, well, you want to come over here and do this? Um, I hadn't done that. And I kind of missed that. I was shortly after that, you know, where the, the independent comics were sort of dying again. And so there was really no way for them to see my artwork unless I somehow managed to get into their office and get in front of them to show it mm -hmm. or wait you know, every six months or something or seven months till there was a convention that I could go to and show my portfolio. Um, 
you know, so I just, like I said, I got, uh, I knew what I wanted to do and I just did everything I could in the world to make it happen. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah great, great stories. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> I love this, man. I'm, I'm just absorbing it all and taking it in. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. These are great. Um, I think we were talking off, off camera about, um, the time that I, I would run into you at the Portland conventions and you'd be, you know, sitting down there drawing with, you know, I don't know if they called it that then, but artist alley. Yeah. You, yeah. Were, you were with a bunch of, you know, different artists that were there. And I was just curious if you, you guys, if, if you got along with everybody or was there sort of like this, you know, it's, it's, it's me against you or it's, it's, it's you against me and I'm better than you and I'll show you. Or did you, you get along with everybody pretty well at that time? This was probably about 89, 90s. Yeah. I mean, it was like, it was when I was doing what though, right? So I was trying to, I was doing a little bit of work. So I had some sort of professional credits that I could, you know, they weren't very uh, respectable, but they were still, you know, credits, you know, so it wouldn't impress anybody for me to say, oh yeah, I'm working on what the, what are you working on? Um, But uh, I got along with everybody in the Portland art scene. Cause it was like Carl and Barbara Kiesel were there and, but they were much, they were much higher on the totem pole. So they were always very nice to me, but they were not like necessarily going to hang around with me or whatever. Um, but they, you know, we were all very cordial. Steve Matson's a guy that, uh, and Gary Martin an inker uh, who inked me on uh, sludge. Um, he uh, you know, those were guys that I sort of befriended while I was there but while you're at the convention, you know, you, you sort of, you talk a little bit, but for the most part, you're just kind of focused on trying to make a little bit of money with, you know, sketches or, you know, whatever you happen yeah. to be selling. And, um, but at that, at that point, the, the comic scene in Portland was pretty small. And that, that's you're, about, you know, Steve Matson, Gary Martin, Randy Emberlin. Randy, uh, he did Carl, a piece for me. Yeah, Carl and Barbara Kiesel and me trying to get in that was about it do you remember um a guy by the name of i think he worked at dark horse chris warner oh yeah yeah he did he did a couple of pieces for me with um the inevitable spider-man beating up batman um chris is great oh yeah he was he was amazing yeah i don't know what he's up to these days but no he's uh, been the art director at dark horse for years oh okay Mm. they're Um, still they're still in portland right yeah, 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 still yeah. same spot over there in Milwaukee. Um, yep. But uh, yeah, so Chris was when, if you remember about that time, uh, Dark Horse had just started. Yep. And they were doing Dark Horse Presents. And I think Chris was doing Black Cross or something like that yep. that was in Dark Horse Presents mm-hmm. and some of the Predator stuff. And then he shortly thereafter became the art director because I don't think, as, as talented as Chris is as an artist, I don't think he liked the, you know, the grind, the monthly grind. And so he'd much rather would, you know, be in an art director's position where he drew, you know, when he wanted to and what he wanted to, and as opposed to having to get on a monthly book and sort of grind it out because he was for a short period of time, he was the Batman artist and he just left because he just didn't want the monthly grind. You're like, dude, you're the Batman artist. You just walk away from Batman. It was crazy. But anyway, so yeah, he was there and he's a really good guy. I got along with him. Great. Um, So yeah, it was, um, you know, we would go out afterwards. 
you know, after the shows or something, you know, all of us would go maybe get dinner sometime or, or something like that after one of the shows. But, you know, other than that, we didn't really hang out that much. Yeah. Because uh, we were kind of spread out all over. I was on the west side. Most of these guys were over on the east side of Portland someplace, you know. So you'd have to have a really good reason to drive all the way across the river and across town to get together. And unless you were working together on something with somebody, there was no real reason to do it. Um, so, you know, we would see each other at conventions and kind of hang out at the convention and then kind of go our separate ways. Well, Lauren, yeah. before we, before we started filming, uh, you showed off your, uh, your, your Spider-Man being a Batman. I was wondering now that we're recording, if you could, if you could show that off for the viewers. Now I, I, there, you know, there is a disclaimer here. Now this was very early in my career, still, uh, putting things together, but, uh, yeah, I used to, I don't even remember what did I do. You remember what I charged you for that? That was like full color. That was a lot of work. Seventy-five right? like bucks. How much? Seventy-five bucks. There you go. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. And this is like full color. It is just the ultimate badassery. <laughs> yeah. Look even, at that. Even me as a Batman. As I wouldn't a Batman even fan. think about doing a commission for $75, let alone actually do one now. So <laughs> what a bargain rate. Yeah. Now, that, I mean, that, that was what you did because you were like, you yep. were doing anything you want, you know, you couldn't charge a bunch of money, obviously, because I wasn't published or very, had very little published. And so it was like, I couldn't demand a lot and I wasn't that good either at the time. And maybe I'm not that good now. I'm better now. I can say that, but it was like, so, you know, it was, you know, I would do like full color single character pieces for 25 bucks or 50 bucks, you know, or something like that. I mean, that was fairly large and elaborate piece that I did for Lauren, but you know, generally I was in like that 25 to $50 range um, for like, I used to do because oh, cool. the Batman fad was just really huge at the time because the Batman movie was coming out in 89, you know, the first one. And so everybody, you know, doing Joker pieces and things like that and color mm -hmm. was yeah. a way to make I used to, I used to ask for uh, <laughs> different, different things out of the norm, you know? Yep. And I remember one of the memories I have of being there, uh, I said, could you do a, a picture of Spider-Man beating up Batman? And this kid, I don't know, he must have been 15 or whatever. He's like, you can't, you can't do that. And we were, all the artists were like, they, they all of a sudden they went, uh, comics, you can do whatever you want. There's no rule. <laughs> Sorry, but you can, yes, you can do that. And then there's the, uh, the great shot of uh, Spidey in his Clyde Jex Drexler jersey. Oh man, the good old days of the Blazers, right? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yep. We, uh, with Dark Horse put on a convention in, uh, oh God, when was it? 92, maybe? Whenever the, the, I think it was the Blazers' first trip to the finals. So was that, that was that 89, 90, 91, somewhere in that neighborhood? Yeah. yeah. They that had a was, big uh, convention. Was that, that was, Chicago, was that Chicago or Detroit? Was Detroit the was the first. Yeah. And so they were playing San Antonio in like, I think the second round. <laughs> Yep. And um, it went seven games and we had, yep. and it was, it was a great convention. Dark Horse would put on these convention and they would invite like big name people like Sam Keith was there. Uh, Dave Stevens was there. Um, other guys that were um, like, I don't know if Adam was, Adam Hughes was there, but I know. Um, well, anyway, there was some other big name people there, but we had brought in a television set 
and we're watching game seven of the Portland San Antonio game. Cause it, it was on Saturday at the, or Saturday or Sunday at this show was right when the game was on. So we had this thing going on. Someone had brought like an old black and white TV or something. And we had, we were watching with rabbit ears, right. And we were watching the game while we're trying to conduct business and stuff uh, at the convention. So that was, I, I have, I have vivid memories of that. So. Yep. And of course we won. Yes. That was a great game. I think Rod, there's a game where Rod Strickland threw the ball behind his back out of bounds. Who's trying to get cute with a pass late in the game to Robinson. He just threw it out of bounds. And it was like clutch turnover that kind of won the game for us. But anyway, yeah. enough about that. Yeah, <laughs> that was, yep. So many good memories of basketball in Portland. Yep. Hey, uh, hey, Aaron. So just yes. another question. Uh, so you've worked at both Marvel and DC. Mm-hmm. Um, can you give me a little bit of insight on your experiences at both of them? Well, it's interesting because I, I I started at Marvel like I you know talked about when I first broke in, but then once I once I left there and went to Malibu, I had sort of a uh, sort of up and down moments. I had I couldn't get back in at Marvel, and but I was able to get in at DC, and I did a series called Tachyon over at DC, which really did horribly. Even though I really thought it was, I thought Sludge was the first professional level work I did uh even though I can I find a lot of things wrong with it that I would you know that I improved upon and things like that but I think I was actually felt pretty good about what I did on Tachyon it was and I can still look back on it and say this was pretty good I did an okay I did a good job on this especially considering where I was in my career at the point but it sold so poorly because it was such a lousy comic that Mm. um I sort of got blacklisted from DC when it got canceled because the writer was a, uh, an editor. So the blame fell on me, not on him for the failure of the book. And so basically the idea around DC was, oh, this guy can't sell a comic. So, you know, we're not going to use him. And uh, so that was my first experience at DC. So it wasn't a great one. And at that period of time, I was, um, I think I went, I had two periods of my career where I went three months completely unemployed, couldn't get arrested. Right. And that was right after Tachyon and it was the first time. So I was like, uh, calling up, uh, people that I knew that I had worked with on something earlier at, uh, like, um, like Scott Dunbeer, I think had became editor in chief. Well, actually, before he became editor-in-chief at Image Comics, or pardon me, Wildstorm, uh, Mike Sellers did. And Mike Sellers was the letterer on my What This Stuff, right? So I would call up Mike and go, dude, throw me anything. You got anything. And so I would get like little bits and pieces from uh, Image here and there that sort of kept me alive during this three-month period of time. I mean, my mm-hmm. wife was working, but I was, I was bringing very little. And my... Um, uh, you know, I used uh, Bo Smith, who was doing um, his Winona Earp, right? I don't know if you guys have seen the show or not, but that's his creation. Mm-hmm. Well, he was working for Todd McFarlane at the time and as kind of a editor over Todd's comic line. 
And I had worked with him at DC on Guy Gardner for an issue or something. And I called him up and said, dude, you got anything? And I got like, he paid me to do this spawn, medieval spawn pinup that paid me at the time for pencils and inks was like $800, which was huge money, right? Because mm-hmm. image had the money. Because I think at that time, my page rate was, you know, wasn't even $200 for drawing, you know, so for them to give me 800 bucks, it was a huge, huge deal. And so I was piecing stuff together that way. And eventually, I was able, I did a short series, a mini series for uh, Wildstorm. And then I used that stuff to sort of uh, get back in at Marvel. And um, so I was doing some X-Men work just, you know, some fill-ins. And um, I got really good inkers. I had Danny Mickey, uh, Mark Morales. And so the stuff looked really, really good. Right, it was really good looking stuff. I'm a big Morales fan too. Yeah, he's terrific. And Danny Mickey, you know, is fantastic as well. And so the stuff I was doing, it was, you know, it was the best looking stuff I'd ever done. Um, Because I, I think I was always able to take a step from one job to the next and get better, you know, kind of realize where I had screwed up and what I needed to do to get better. Then I was able to make those, take those steps and get better. So the X-Men stuff I was doing was really pretty, was really good. And it was being inked exceptionally well. So it just looked really good. So after about, I want to say three or four issues of that, uh, the assistant editor uh, was Pete Franco and the editor there was Mark Powers was in charge of the X office. And at this, at this point, uh, Bob Harris had become editor-in-chief. So he was the big X-Men guy when Jim Lee was there and everything. And then he moved up to editor-in-chief and Mark Powers had taken over the X-Men office. So um, Pete Franco, the assistant, calls me up and he goes, you know, we really love what you're doing. And he says, we're going to make you the next big X-Men artist. Okay. So those are like the words that everybody wants to hear, right? It's like you yeah. finally, you've That's grinded, cool. you clawed, you're finally getting this opportunity to, to have a major impact in the industry. Mm-hmm. And so I had got off the phone. I'm just dancing around, right? I'm, I'm telling my wife, I finally made it. I finally got it. I'm finally, you know, this is it, the big break, finally. And then like a week later, they got fired, both of them. Uh, and I was unemployed again, just like that. Geez. I went from okay. top of the heap to the bottom of the garbage pile, just like that. So uh, at that point, so then I went into this other again, I was like, I couldn't get any work anyplace again. Right. And so that's when CrossGen came up and I went over and I know this is a long about way to answer your question, but you got to understand where I was coming from when I got there. So after CrossGen, I'll skip that for right now. And after CrossGen went under, I was able, the work I did at CrossGen was, was really, really good stuff. And so I was able to get back in at Marvel at that point. And so my experiences at Marvel, I worked with Mike Martz, who I, you know, became pretty good friends with and was doing stuff in the X-Men office. And that's, and then I, you know, I ended up, uh, Mark Panisha was another editor over there that I, I knew pretty well from the Malibu days. And he's the guy that gave me the Hulk stuff. And then they put me on Ms. Marvel and I was on Ms. Marvel for, you know, a year and a half or two years. So I had a really good relationship with everybody over at Marvel as, as it, it wasn't, it was always at kind of a distance. I never really, I, I never really met, you know, like Joe Casada, and I never met uh, the guys that were really the power brokers over there. I was just kind of, you know, I knew certain editors and got along with them fine. 
and they were keeping me busy, you know. And um, I, after Ms. Marvel, I got into a disagreement over, um, I didn't get to do the covers on Ms. Marvel, which really ticked me off. And so they wanted me to do Ultimate X-Men. And I said, okay, but I'm doing the covers. And they go, well, we don't know about that. And I'm just like, oh my gosh. So I said to them, I said, just, I said, look, let me do a cover sample for you guys. And, you know, and so I was halfway through doing the cover sample, right? Doing this for free, right? Mm-hmm. After I'd already been working there for four years and had this career that had been probably about 10 years at this point. And it was like one of those Bugs Bunny moments, you know, where Bugs Bunny tricked you into doing something, the character, and he would start start realizing he was halfway done building a house or something and realizing that Bugs Bunny had just tricked him into doing this and he'd go nuts. And so I was halfway done with this cover and I'm like, what am I doing? Why do I have to do a sample for a cover to get on Ultimate Fantastic Four, which was the book they were offering me? Why are they not just giving me this? Because I'd done covers for them before. There was no logical reason in the world why they, why they were making me do this. And so I got really pissed. So I called up mm. DC and I talked to Dan DeDio and they were like, yeah, come on over. We'll put you on a big book and blah, blah, blah. You know, and so and they offered me more money. And so, and another thing that was going on at Marvel at that time is I had this man thing special that I wanted to do. And it was going to be a giant size man thing, you know, because I knew it'd be funny. You know, the jokes are always there for giant size man thing. And, but it was actually a really good story. And it would have been a fun thing to do. And it was a one shot. And I wanted to get to, into doing more writing. And um, so I thought this is a perfect thing. You know, it's, it's, it's low profile, you know, I'll be able to do pretty much whatever I want. And so I threw it out there and they said, yeah, yeah, we can do that. Yeah, yeah, we'll do that. And they kept telling me, yeah, yeah, we'll do it. And they never did right? They just kept pushing it aside. So that was kind of irritating me a little bit. And so then this thing with the cover. So I called my editor up and I sent the cover in, uh, called the editor up or he called me and said, yeah, Aaron, this looks great. You can do the covers. I said, no, I quit. And uh, because I was just pissed, right? And so then I went and went over to DC and, and Marvel actually had offered me actually a really good rate they said, look, don't do this, you know, we'll up your rate and blah, blah, blah. But I was so pissed. And I thought, look it, okay, you can pay me more money, but you're still going to not have any respect for me clearly, or at least the level that I wanted. And so, and I felt that DC did have that respect for me. So I, I went over to DC and kind of never looked back. And the unfortunate thing was that I had a great relationship with Dan DiDio, and that's the best kind of, when you're when you are tight with the editor-in-chief and the publisher, you don't have to worry about getting your next gig. You know, Dan always took care of me. So I got really sort of lazy and sort of um, just kind of let my bridges fall apart over at Marvel and never really talked to anybody over there for the 10 years I was at DC. And occasionally I would do a cover for Archie or Dynamite or something, but you know, I was not actively out there selling myself anymore because I was always getting work at DC, right? So you just kind of get comfortable and relax. And I basically did what you're never supposed to do is put all my eggs in one basket. Um, so I was on contract with them though for five years, I think. And then they started cutting all the contracts and stuff, but Dan still kept me busy. And uh, so I had great working relationships with everybody at DC, 
which I'd never really gotten to know other than a few editors over at Marvel. DC, I knew everybody at just about every level. You know, like I said, I knew Dan, obviously he was at the top of the ladder, but then guys in production and, and uh, guys in human relations and guys in the art director, you know, Mark Chiarello, these were all guys I knew really well and had good relationships with. And so as long, you know, as long as they were in place, there was work to be had, you know, and I didn't have anything to worry about. But then when, you know, AT&T bought Warner Brothers who had bought DC and then they started clearing house a couple of years ago and they let Dan DiDio go, I was like, I'm screwed, mm. you know? And so I was able to work on Justice League for about eight months. And then they did that second wave of, of firing everybody in that September. And suddenly everybody that, you know, editorially that was, I was friends with and that readily gave me work, they were all gone. Wow. So to- I remember that too. Yeah. And so I guess basically in a nutshell to what I guess it's too late to put everything in a nutshell because I always take a short question and turn it into a super long answer. But um, the difference between Marvel and DC was just my relationships that I was able to build at DC that I never really did at Marvel. It was Marvel was just I had some great stories at Marvel. I worked with Chris Claremont, you know, on Excalibur and, you know, uh, had good relationship with him. And the editors I worked with always had a good relationship with. But DC always was more, was more of a family environment for me because I just, I just knew everybody. And I came over there on a high note, you know, with somebody that they were like poaching from Marvel as opposed to someone that was groveling for work. You know what I mean? And so I was just treated better because of that aspect of it. And, uh, and then I was able to make friends over there. And, you know, so it was just, not that there was anything wrong with Marvel and the, the way that it was set up. It's just that um, I just never established the relationships at Marvel that I did at DC. So right. I was never confident at Marvel that, you know, maybe I would have a, a job next month. Where at DC, I was all, I never worried about it. Well, speaking of uh, complex questions, um, I, I've got one, but I, I, we've, you've been very generous with your time. So no, I know this, this is probably we could probably go on to this question for for hours, um, but I wonder if you could give me like a give us like a little snippet of like what's it like between like the dynamic of a writer and an artist because one of my favorite duos recently has been like Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo, and I know like they're good friends with one another and I, I love the work that they do, but I've always been curious, you know, how soon do you get this the script and how much liberty do you have to be like, hey, let's do this or I or is it you know, very explicit, your instructions, just, I know that's a lot, but can you give no, us like a did. tiny? No, it depends on, it depends on the writer, but I, I will say for me personally, I've never had, I'm, I want to, I, you know, I hesitate to say never, but I think it's true. I don't think I've ever had any issues with a writer. And mm. that's, that's pretty remarkable considering um, how much work I've done over the years. Yeah. Um, Generally, what happens was, in, in my case, if I started a new series, say it was Wonder Woman, or um, I'll, give you, I'll give you specific examples. Chris Claremont pretty much knew what he wanted to do with Excalibur, so I didn't come in to Excalibur, and he didn't go, Aaron, what do you want to do? You know, He knew what he was going to do. I, my job was to draw it. 
Right. And that's what I did. And it was totally fine. And we would talk about things that he wanted, but I kind of figured it was his baby. I would just do what he wanted. And there was never really any issue. Every, occasionally he would, he would say to me, is there anybody you want me to include in this series you'd like to draw? And I remember I told him Dr. Strange once. And so he put Dr. Strange and Dormammu in this short segment in an Excalibur book. And uh, so I got to draw, I had to, you know, this couple of Dr. Strange splash pages, which were really cool. Um, but for the most part, like when I worked on, um, well, when I did Sentinel Squad for Marvel, John Lehman was the artist. And he's like, hey, what do you like to draw? And I always tell people the same thing, eh, dinosaurs and monsters, you know. And so then he would work, he worked in this whole dinosaur angle into the story, you know. And I said, can you, any way you can work Galactus into this? And so he did, uh, or the Hulk, because he would, he would, these, the, the storyline was these Sentinels were, these giant sentinels that were like, uh, they had like human pilots sitting up in the head, right? And mm -hmm. they would control these giant sentinels. This was just before House <clears throat> of M. And um, so they would have these training sessions. So he had this one training session where they had this Hulk robot. And, but it was the Hulk for about three pages until he got busted up and we saw he was a robot. So it was just, you know, it was me drawing the Hulk, right? Rampaging. And then he did the same thing with Galactus and Silver Surfer. He said, okay, I'm going to work up this thing where they're training on this, this hologram deck. And so he had the Sentinel fighting Galactus and Silver Surfer showed up, you know, and, and so he, they would work these things in. And uh, when I took over, when I took Wonder Woman over, that was the first job I had when I went over to DC, Gail Simone was the writer. And the first thing she says to me is, what do you want to draw? And I'm like, yeah, you know, dinosaurs, monsters, it's the same thing I told that, you know, <laughs> jungle action. And so the first story arc with Wonder Woman was this kind of thing where she brought back the, um, all the barbarian heroes from the 70s from DC, Claw the Unconquered, Beowulf, uh, the Stalker. Is that the, yeah, those are the three. And so it was like this barbarian Wonder Woman story we did. And it was great. It was great fun to draw. And Gail was always... Uh, very respectful of, you know, things I, I was comfortable drawing, things I weren't comfortable drawing, uh, you know, how to approach certain things. She always would ask my opinion. I wasn't like giving her story ideas or anything other than that, that first concept, you know, we should do something with barbarians. And, um, but that, that's been my uh, experience with, with writers is they, they always have come to me and said, Hey, anything you want to do specifically, you know, and then I would throw it out there and they would always incorporate them. So even That's when really I worked cool. on, you know, damage for DC, which was kind of like their Hulk character there. Um, mm. Or if I worked on, um, uh, what was the other thing I did at Marvel that, that I remember having that specific, Oh, when I was working on Ms. Marvel, um, Brian Reed, the, art, the author was like, or the writer was like, anything you want to work on? I go, yeah. Can we get MODOK in here? I really want to draw Modoc, and so he worked Modoc into this elaborate storyline. So I was drawing Modoc all the time. Wow! And uh, you cool. know, I, I went, went to Monster Island so I could draw a bunch of the Kirby monsters. That was like that was me suggesting, hey, anyway, we can do this. And I actually had a similar story arc with Damage uh, when Robert Vendetti, the writer, I was like, hey, what? Because they were like, what should we do now? And I'm like, how about if he goes to Monster Island and fights a bunch of giant monsters? He's like. Yes. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, that, that that was a good story too. I really oh. enjoyed that. Oh, you read that one with um with the who's the giant gorilla guy? It was, not, was it Kong Gorilla? 
it, it was something like that. But you also had like you 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 did have giants in there, and um, you're talking I about the damage or the Ms. Marvel one? No damage. Yeah, yeah. They had those giant monsters. I got to create a bunch of monsters, but he also worked in this really kind of cool story arc with right. um, ca- um, the Justice League dropped them off on the yeah, island, right, to get rid of him, kind of thing. Yeah. So, was, yeah. Yeah, that was that was a fun book, and you know the unfortunate thing with that was that um, they launched all those. They were not they weren't called New Universe. What were they called? They were that new line of books that were like all new characters, but I can't remember what the line was called. But most of the books were set up where they would bring in you know what what they would regard as a you know a top name artist, and they would do a couple issues and they leave, mm-hmm. right, and so when you do that, in my opinion, when you do that with a line of books, you're asking for disaster because you're setting something up and then, you know, they're, they're saying, oh, you know, so-and-so is going to draw this book. Tony Daniel was the one who started Damage. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, but he was, they, they knew he was leaving after three issues. And they're like, well, we want it to launch strong and all this kind of stuff. And I didn't know anything about this because I was working on I might've been working on the Herculoids or something at that point or the Conan Wonder Woman thing with um, Gail. Uh, but so I don't know what the conversations were, but these guys were all leaving after the, you know, the first three issues. So, so Tony Daniels starts off three issues, starts off with a bang and then he leaves. Right. And so then they're like, they had like three different artists over the next like four issues, four or five issues. Right. And so, and the sales are in the tank. And <clears throat> so I get this call going, hey, um, do you want to come in and take over damage and see if you can fix it? And I'm like, why didn't you just start me out on this book? You know, because the thing is already in the tank and now we're just going to try and resurrect it on issue number nine. Mm. Um, you know, so at that point, it's a losing battle because most people, <clears throat> majority of your audience has left right? Yeah. They didn't want the inconsistent. I mean, the writer was, Robert was doing a great job writing it, but when you've got like three different artists over a four or five issue span, you know, and some of them are better than other ones. And uh, Kerry Nord did one issue that I thought was great and they didn't like it. And so they got rid of him after one issue. Oh, and I remember man. talking to him just going, dude, this, it was Poison Ivy was the guest star in the issue. Yeah. And I, th- I mean, it was, Kerry has a very interesting and different style. And I guess it wasn't classic superhero enough for what they were looking for or whatever but i thought it was awesome and i was just like why did you only do one issue and he goes oh, they don't want me to do anymore and i'm like what and then they hired somebody who from brazil who didn't speak english and he was having a real hard time interpreting the scripts because the scripts dan said dan didio had set this whole line up to be kind of like old school marvel where you'd get plots speaking of your writing question no dialogue just plots mm-hmm. right which we they call the marvel style so um, so this this guy from Brazil who didn't speak any English uh, was having a really hard time interpreting some of this stuff. And so that wasn't working out. So that's when they brought me in, right? And so then Robert and I tried to do what we could to sensationalize the character, bigger stories, bring in Batman, bring in the Justice League, bring in Dead Man, bring in all this other stuff, you know, to try and get some interest in it. And we had a, we had a great fun working on it. Uh, but it was kind of like too little too late. And I was just like, yeah, why didn't you just put me on this book from the very beginning and we wouldn't have this problem? 
you wouldn't be yeah. trying to save the book. We would have yeah. we would have been able to to get a certain level of consistency to it. But See, I, that's the way it works. I, and, I I I kept reading. You know, con, you know, I read the entire uh, series and I really enjoyed it. I would have been um, a fan of Robert Venditti's. Yeah, he's uh, good work since uh, he was put on Green Lantern mm-hmm. all those years ago. So well, you, the, the fun thing with those scripts, you're talking about writers again is like I said, they were all plots because they wanted Dan wanted the artists to have more voice in the storytelling, which makes even less sense to keep changing artists all the time. Right. If right. you want the, if you want the artist to be a major storyteller in the series, then you need consistency. So I would get these scripts like the justice league issues, for example, when Superman showed up and Superman and, and damage fought, right. He, he, he'd have the, you know, the story. And then he, and I'm not kidding. He said from, this would happen all the time. And, and it was just the way it was set up. He would say, okay, from page nine to page 16, it's fight scene. And that was it. And he would say, this is where it needs to start. And this is where it needs to end. And then I would just make it up. Mm. And then I would do whatever I wanted freedom. to do. And then he would get it and dialogue it. Right. So the structure was there. But like choreographing fight scenes and things like that, that was all just Aaron, you know, do what you want to do. Would, and, he, would um, he ever look at it and say, you know, from nine to 11 is cool, but page 13 was kind of weird. Can you redo that? No, never. The only time I ever had to redraw anything is if I screwed up somebody's costume or, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I think, or yeah, in fact, that's the only time I remember ever redrawing stuff is when I messed up costume details. And sometimes they wouldn't catch them till after the book was inked and colored. And they go, oh, wait a minute, Wonder Woman's thing is breastplate is wrong. And I'd like, oh, so then you got to go draw this patch, right? And ink it and and, and mm-hmm. send it over to them to fix it. And, you know, or they would change the story. That happened to me a couple of times where they'd go, I do a two page sequence and they go, you know what? We don't want to use that. We're changing it to this. And they have to redraw this two pages. But would you get paid? Would you get paid for those ones that you did and get paid for the new ones? Sometimes. Mm. Usually if it was your fault, they wouldn't repay you. If it was their fault, they generally would repay you. Cause I did uh, convergence. I did an issue of convergence. They had this big mini series, right? That Scott. And, um, they kept changing who the villain was. And so, and Dan told me this, he told me before I took the job, he goes, look at, I, I, I promise you, he goes, it's just one issue. He said, it's going to be a pain in the butt, but he said, you get to draw all like so many characters in the DC universe. It'll be worth your time. And I'm like, yeah. all right, I'll do it. And so, and sure enough, I did the first three pages to the story. And then he's like, uh, we changed the villain, so we have to redraw these. And I'm just like, ugh. And so, so I redid that. And this happened periodically throughout this issue. And the cool thing about it was it was all double-page spreads. And it was practically one big fight scene for 22 pages. So it was a lot of fun. But mm-hmm. I had to keep redrawing stuff because they kept changing what they were doing. And then there was a scene where the guy, the villain, gets killed at the end of the story. And they originally made it um, Warlord's Wife. Because yeah. I think in the, I think Kubert did the issue before me that kind of focused on Warlord and this villain killed Warlord, right? 
and I'm talking about the Mike Grell warlord, you know, from the 70s. Mm -hmm. And uh, so his wife wanted to avenge him, right? So she shows up and kills this major superhero, but this, this I mean, supervillain, but this supervillain is like super powerful, right? So I draw the page where she shows up and, and basically takes one of her primitive spears and, you know, right in his chest. And um, then they go, you know what? He's way too powerful for basically this cave chick to kill. So I had drawn the page and I'd already sent it. Mark Morales was inking. I already sent it to Mark. So he had inked the very first panel, but not the rest of the page. And I get this notification, like, we got to change this. Yeah. We're going to make it Green Lantern, you know, someone more powerful. So that old page went out the window and I had to redraw the whole thing as Green Lantern, right? <clears throat> so I still have the page sitting in my drawer. It's all penciled and has the one panel inked by Mark Morales. Uh, but yeah, that that happened pretty regularly on Convergence. But as far as other things, that rarely happened hmm. unless I screwed something up, you know, and had to add something or take something out that I wasn't supposed to be in there in the first place. So that's good stories. Yeah. Um, what advice would you give to, say, somebody starting out in, in the in the world of we'll, we'll just keep it at comic book art for somebody starting out and wanting to get into the. Yeah. into the industry it's um you know it's a it's even more challenging now because you start to see uh these corporate ownership of these companies and mm. they're squeezing them right so not only do you have questionable subject matter in a lot of carriers we, we won't get into that i mean because everybody has different opinions about that but uh, they're certainly treating the characters differently than they have traditionally in a lot of cases mm -hmm. let's just put it that way and so you have to decide whether if that's, you know, if those are the kind of stories you want to tell or not, number one. And then number two, because they're cutting costs like crazy, you're finding that there's, and they're cutting titles, especially at DC, um, that there's less opportunity. Now, mm -hmm. you go and talk to somebody even older than me, you know, guys like Claremont or Jim Starlin or people like that that worked in the 70s when they were drawing comics in the 70s they were all saying comics is going to be dead by 1980 we all got to start figuring out what are we going to do next for our careers because they they all expected comics to go under and I think you talk to any decade of artists or writers and they all tell you the same thing we're always expecting comic books to collapse this is it this is it it's go they're going under and they <laughs> never do uh, but I would say that there's there's a little bit more realistic fear right now that things are potentially going to get downsized to a point where there's nowhere near the opportunities in comics that there used to be, right? Just in terms of volume of titles. Uh, so what that means is the, the market is way more competitive than it's ever been mm -hmm. because you have more people that want to get into comics, but you have less opportunities. And I think the other the other difficult thing to do is or to realize is that all sorts of commercial art have sort of died out okay you know there's no really no not a lot of people are doing album cover art or you know what a dvd i mean they're not even doing uh, cds anymore hardly are they um it's everything's all digital downloads so where there used to be a great the great opportunity for illustrators album cover album covers movie posters, comic books, ad work, stuff in magazines, all that stuff is gone for the most part. And so what you see is people that are illustrators, they have no place to go except to comics. 
So now you have this large influx of talent coming into the industry and less opportunity. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's a challenging thing to break in. And, you know, one of the things I'm doing now is independently publishing, using crowdfunding as a way to publish a book. And there's been a lot of success in that. There's also been a lot of failure in that. Again, it, you know, it depends on a lot of factors. Uh, so there's no guarantees. But the one good thing is there's so many avenues from what to get yourself published now that there weren't. You know, when I was breaking in, it was Marvel or DC or nothing, right? Mm-hmm. And now it's, you know, the Marvel and DC opportunities are still there, although they're not as plentiful, but they're still there. And then there's also, there's so much stuff going on the internet digitally uh, that you can you know, produce your own comic at very little cost, especially if you just release it on the internet, right? You don't have any printing costs at all. And uh, so there's, there's a variety of opportunities to get your work seen and, you know, Patreon and things like that where people can, you know, uh, charge to have their, if you're doing a comic strip or a comic book or a digital comic book or something like that, there's, there's a lot more opportunity out there, but it's also, I think, as competitive as it's ever been, if not more so. So there's a good side and a bad side to that. I mean, everybody has to sort of follow your dream, right? Um, I got rejected so many times. I got fired so many times, but I was convinced that I could get it. I could get there, you know, that I could get my skills to a level where that I could work regularly and have an impact in the industry. And I believed in myself enough to continue to take that abuse until I got to a point where that, that it did go my way. So, I mean, you know, perseverance, as we talked about earlier, I mean, talent is key. Obviously you have to have a realistic assessment of what your abilities are. And then, Mm -hmm. but then perseverance and hard work and looking for taking advantage of the opportunities that exist on the internet that didn't exist before, as well as just trying to break into Marvel and DC. And I still think that you can go to a convention with your portfolio and get it looked at like it's a, you have to go to a major show to do it, but that's still a possibility. The other way is, you know, you can send people digital files now, or you can post your stuff, Mm. send a link and go, Hey, check out my portfolio. And it's very easy for an editor now to check out somebody's portfolio online without ever interacting with that person. Right. So you never have to, you don't have to look for the guy hanging outside your office door with his portfolios you know, giving you the glare, look at my stuff. So it's much easier to be seen. So, you know, I, I just tell everybody, you know, you got to follow your dreams, but you also have to be realistic about where you're at and what your abilities are. And do you have enough fortitude to withstand all the slings and arrows to get to where you want to be? And if you answer yes to all those questions, then you just, you know, you go for it and, you know, you, you find ways to get it done and obviously improving your drawing skills, which I'm still doing, you know, at my age of 58, still looking at people that are better than me, still looking at ways to improve what I'm doing. Um, and you always have to be in that mode because there's always someone up coming up. that's better. And there are guys that are, you're working against that are the same age that are better, you know? So you're always, you always have to get better. And it's, it's hard work, so you have to be ready for that. But it's also, you know, can be very rewarding. So, was well, as, as we're uh, as we're wrapping up, uh, you mentioned, um, you know, you're doing more in, um, 
so you know self-publishing and all in and, and um independent campaigns and all that um as we wrap up i was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your project um and how uh, how people can support it you know what's it about and how can how can people help uh it's called wraith of god as you can see on my my beanie here we have merchandise um it's it's on a uh, um indiegogo and kickstarter are basically the two main crowdfunding uh platforms and this one's on indiegogo um which seems to have a stronger comic community attached to it than kickstarter does but that you know it's chevy or ford right you know you kind mm -hmm. of pick and choose your poison and see what happens but um so wraith of god is a monster superhero western it's kind of a in a mm -hmm. nutshell it's kind of a batman of the old west sorry lauren but he's not he's not batman <laughs> but he it, it he uh he fights monsters hunts down monsters he has an alfred character whose uh his name his female character named esther who is a former salvation army worker that he has recruited to work with him in this quest to you know hunt down these monsters in the old west so it has this this interesting blend of superhero um but also it's a western and it's also a monster book because in this particular case they're hunting down this uh uh this werewolf and they're heading to this small western town in 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 arizona where this british monster hunter is kind of hidden out and he has this medallion that if a werewolf gets a hold of the medallion it it basically makes them invincible in their bestial form so in other words the werewolf had this medallion on him you couldn't kill him with a silver bullet you couldn't kill him right so it's kind of like the wraith of, is trying to get this medallion before the werewolf gets it and all this kind of stuff so there's werewolf action and there's um it's an 84 page graphic novel so it's it's like four a four issue miniseries kind of packed into uh this one volume and it's something I almost did at DC, got this close to having it at DC. And then uh, I was talking with it about Dan to deal with it. And we kept getting sidetracked because he was doing other things. I was doing other things. And then, you know, he, he got let go. And then so, you know, so I just said, you know, what, I'm gonna do it myself. And the original concept was something and I came up with in the 90s that I was pitching to Marvel as a revamping of the Western Ghost Rider. Mm. And they weren't interested. So I just said, you know what, I'm gonna make this my own character. And so where he was the Western ghostwriter, an all white character, now he became this all black character, you know, all black garb and, and very mysterious. And, you know, he's a master of disguise and illusion and has a background, a circus background and all this kind of stuff that, you know, so you get his origin and there's kind of several layers to it. You don't really know who the werewolf is. So there's kind of a mystery story unfolding and he's doing detective work, trying to figure out who's who. Um, You've got a very sort of uneasy relationship between uh, the Wraith and Esther, who are their partners, but at the same time, there's a real uh, conflict going on between those two. Uh, so there's many layers to the story, I, I, I hope, that make it more interesting than just, you know, a slam bang uh, comic book story. There is plenty of action in it, but there's also this sort of complex character stuff that's sort of evolved. And, and, um, it, and I've got some, if you guys have visited, I don't know if you visited the campaign page or not, but I've got some real strong images that resonated with people and it, it just made the, uh, um, it, it hit really well. 
you know, for whatever reason. And um, so it's, like I said, it's an 84 page graphic novel. The actual comic itself, the story is 78 pages out of the 84 page book. And I'm on page 72 right now. So I am six pages from being done with it. Mm. And if you want to check it, it so it's going to be open for orders probably for at least, well, probably three more weeks. And then I'll shut it down and go to the printer with it. So if you want to get in on it, you got about three weeks. And we've also got t-shirts, uh, which someone said, wow, man, that design, that's really metal. So I don't know, Lauren, you probably know what that means. Uh, but um, so I have t-shirts, we have beanies, and we have uh, shot glasses that say Wraith of God. They're laser etched on them. They're awesome. kind of fun. Cool. So this is kind of the swag stuff that's attached to it. Or you can just buy the book, you know, uh, but there's all these different uh, levels of, and it's all pre-order stuff, right? That's how it's set up. So you're buying the book in advance, basically providing the creator with the money to actually do the project. Mm -hmm. uh, what you get in benefit out of that is you're the first one who gets the books. And you're also, we like to put in what are called stretch goals that every time we hit a certain dollar amount, we add like free stuff that you get for backing the campaign. Like one of the things is I've got an Ace of Spades, uh, Wraith of God playing card. And there's a, there's a couple of trading cards. There's a, a print. Um, I got Dale Keown to do something inside the book as an extra stretch goal. Um, so there's, there's a lot of cool free stuff that come with it, as well as the book itself. Um, so it's, you know, it, all of us, I think, when we're young, we have these ideas of you, you create your own universe, right, of characters, and you say, someday I'm going to use these characters. And I'm, I'm finally at a point in my career where mm -hmm. I'm getting to do that, and sort of creating a Lopresti verse, if you will, and I've got all this stuff planned out. This is just the very first step in it. And of course, every stage is going to be dependent on how well it's backed and, you know, uh, received by the, the readers and the, uh, the backers. So, you know, it, it could blossom into this huge thing. It could die after this campaign. You just never know. But hopefully we'll, we'll get this, we'll continue to build and I can bring more characters into it rather than, other than just the Wraith. And um, <clears throat> so... Uh, that's, that's basically it. And it's, um, you're wearing all these hats of it for me, writer, artist, editor, publisher. Um, you know, I've got to get, I got to hire a colorist. I got to hire a letterer. Um, I have, but you know, those are things you have to take care of. And then you got to get the book printed, right. And you got to find a printer and you got to handle all that stuff. And then you got, when you get the books back, you got to handle the distribution. So it's, it's a lot, a lot of work. But at the same time, you're doing your own thing and you're owning your own IP, right? So it's not like I'm, you know, I spent 30 years of my life working for Marvel and DC and other companies promoting their characters, right? So the only thing I ever got out of it was a paycheck for the work I did, you know, yeah. and you get, you get some royalties on sales on stuff, you know, but this is the first opportunity I've had to really do stuff that were characters that I've developed that I have control over that I own right now that it may never be more than just a comic book but if someone wanted to make a toy if someone wanted to make a video game if someone wanted to make a movie or television show it's my character right so mm -hmm. I'm the one benefiting from that uh, as opposed to DC or Marvel um, and again going back to me I'm not someone who my whole life I just 
would happy drawing Spider-Man, you know, and I could die happy. I always had my own stuff I wanted to do. But once you get into that, you know, that rhythm of married, kids, own a home, bills to pay, it becomes a job. And you're just like, you don't, you quit thinking about all the creative stuff you want to do personally. And you just think about next job so I can pay my bills. And so, and pretty soon you look and you go, I've been doing this for 30 years and I've got nothing to show for it other than, you know, what comic books I leave behind for history or whatever. But in terms of characters you've created and, and maybe what you've added to the pop culture, I, you know, um, atmosphere, we've got nothing. And so now's my opportunity to kind of throw that stuff out there and see if it sticks. So it's, it's scary and it's exciting. I've got this. There you go. There it is. But anyway, people can go to Indiegogo and they look up Wraith of God, not Wrath of God, but Wraith, like a spirit Wraith, mm -hmm. or Aaron Lopresti, and you'll be able to find the campaign pretty easily. And we'll be sure to link it uh, once oh, okay. once this goes up because um, it. I'm mean, just hearing the description from you. Uh, first of all, it's cool to hear it straight from the from the guy's mouth. Uh, but just yeah. hearing the description, it, it sounds like a book I'd like to read. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, this has been really awesome, a real treat to to have you on. And uh, I think we we could go for another uh, three or four hours, I'm sure, uh, if we wanted to. Because uh, there's of stories. Yeah, there's so much, you know. If you, and if you ever want to come back on, maybe when when the when the book is out and, and talk mm. about it again or you know anytime you want to yeah that'd be great we'd love to pick your brain some more and, and talk more about what you're doing you know this has been awesome yeah well thank you guys okay. for having me i really appreciate it i always enjoy uh talking about this stuff and of course getting to see lauren again has been great because i've <laughs> seen you and since we both had hair and uh yeah <laughs> so, and that's been a long time ago yeah <laughs> Mother Nature said you're done having fun. <laughs> so I got to enjoy this while it lasts then, right? That's right. Hang on to it. Yeah. You can, man. You never know. You I never know. Oh, well, let's see. Well like, well, like I said, this has been awesome. And uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us, um, really getting into the nitty gritty of what it's like being an artist. And um, we're looking forward to uh, Wraith of God coming out. And like I said, we'll have to have you back on once it's officially out. Great. Thank you Absolutely. guys so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was good to see you again, Aaron. It's great to see you too. Yay! <laughs> <laughs>